like that song. <laughs> that was uh, that was all right. I think we could hear that again. Hey, uh, I, I, Dale, I, he's fouled up his explanation of, of what's going on with this album and everything. I would think you'd do a little better job at that, Dale. We didn't just decide to make an album. Uh, actually, a publishing company came to us and asked us to make this album, and then they'll, they'll share it, they'll market it uh, with churches throughout America and the world, and their choirs will learn to do this music by, by watching our choir and, and go through all these songs. So pretty exciting opportunity. And uh, Dale mentioned a handful of songs you've already heard and some more. Actually, the first Sunday in November... Uh, we're going to have a, a special worship service that day where a lot of this music will be presented. Now, the first Sunday in November should ring a bell. That'll take place right before the first Tuesday in November. And yeah, we're going to have a special time of, of prayer and worship. And as we thought about how we approach this election, uh, and we're certainly going to use that day for prayer, but we thought, you know what, we're going to approach it with worship. Because no matter what happens Tuesday, the King of Kings still reigns. No matter what happens Tuesday, His plan. And this is hard because we get frustrated and angry and this and that. that. Listen, there's one plan that's going to stand at the end of the day, and that's the King of Kings. Amen? Amen. I, I, I love Isaiah 14, 26. God says, my plan will stand and my purpose will be accomplished. You know, only one person can say that. Only one person can say it. You might be familiar with a, uh, an old TV show, uh, and, and it became later a, a movie. The A-Team? Y'all remember that, right? Probably not going to go down in history as a cinematic classic. Uh, probably not the best thing yet, but a lot of fun, right? But, but out of that show did come a great line, a great quote. You, anybody guess where I'm going with this? I love it when a plan comes together. You, you know, I'm guessing 2020, not a year that we look back on and say, I love it when a plan comes together. Uh, probably not a lot of people right now feeling as they look at this year that a plan ha- has come together. And uh, folks, we come today, we come today to Revelation 19, the greatest exclamation point on a plan. We have been working now. Today is my 19th message. I believe every single one of those messages leading to today. As a matter of fact, I would dare say that every single page in the Bible is leading to Revelation chapter 19. The second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, when I say second... That just almost immediately makes you say, well, what went wrong in the first? You know, right? I, I, I mean, what, what, what happened that, that we had to, to come back and, and get this right? What I want us to see today before we fully take on the second coming is that it was always God's plan for there to be two comings. You know what? Revelation 19 and John chapter 19. You say, what happened in John chapter 19? Well, that's the cross. So the second coming and the cross are an answer to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Now at the second coming, folks, all of human history pivots on that moment. 
Uh, Time and space pivot on that moment. But there was another moment that everything pivoted, and that was in Genesis chapter 3. You may be wondering, well, what what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Well, we're going to, we're actually going to look at that. You may want to turn in your Bible now. I'm not going to read just yet, but you may want to get it open there to Genesis chapter 3. I feel like I almost need to apologize. We've been building up to these last few pages of the Bible to Revelation 19, and I just told you to turn to the first couple of pages of the Bible. But I think for us to fully grasp the, the context of what is about to happen, of what we are about to see in Revelation 19. We, we need to be reminded, we need to be refreshed that there is a plan being fulfilled here. There, there is a context of what God is doing. And it always involved a first coming and a second coming of Jesus Christ. Because you see, if God did what he's going to do when we look at uh, Revelation 19, as we look at the second coming, if he did that without there being a first coming, we're all in trouble. If he comes the second time without there being a first time, we are all going to eternal separation. We're all going to hell with Satan. So that's why it's very important we remember this is a part of a plan. It's always been God's plan. Now, what happened in Genesis chapter 3? You might remember the story there. That's where Satan is going to come before Adam and Eve and be able to tempt them to doubt that God is good. Such a little thing. Such a little thing. Just for a moment, just doubt that maybe God isn't good. And you know, if God isn't good, you know, I know somebody who is me. I, I don't know anybody better than me. And so if God's goodness is in question, then maybe I can just trust in my own goodness. And maybe we'll just take that a step further. And hey, why do I even need a God to begin with? I can be God myself. And that's how that train of thinking, that's how that temptation went. It started with a doubt of God's goodness to, hey, why don't you just be God yourself? And we ran with that decision. We we ran with that choice. And look at the mess we made. Because I think I'm so good, there's there's weeds. There's weeds and there's mosquitoes. And there's mountains that erupt, and there's swathes that swallow, and there are animals that attack. Because I believe I'm so good, there's cancer. And there is war, and there is poverty, and there is prejudice, and there is injustice, and there is violence, and there is car accidents. Folks, every single problem, not a lot of them, Every single problem goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Goes back to you and I giving in to this idea that we're pretty good and we can do this ourselves. Revelation 19, John 19 is an answer to what happened there in Genesis. You know, we might be able to freely choose... But choices come with consequences. And a freedom to choose is a freedom to choose wrong. And to experience the consequences of that wrong. 
And as we go through those consequences, folks, uh, I mean, Genesis 3 is introducing us what I just walked through from mosquitoes to, 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 to all the other problems. Folks, that's all a consequence of our, of our choice. And, and, you know, we have wrecked this world. Every day you and I live in the world that we wrecked. And if you're honest with yourself, and here's where all of our arrogance and pride shows, you don't consider yourself the problem. You think somebody else made this happen. When the reality is that every single one of us has pitched in. And you're playing a game with yourself if you think, well, I didn't pitch in as much as they did. Every problem on this planet, you have been a part of making happen. Do you know that the, the, the creation literally longs for God to come and get it back? It's a question whether you and I long for that. It's not a question that creation longs. Look what Romans chapter 8 says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. Creation longs for God to come and bring the judgment that is due to us. You know, as we walk through Genesis 3, there's a a variety of consequences that unfold. But the key consequence is death. The key consequence is separation from God. Hebrews 9.27 says it this way. It's been appointed unto man to die once. And then face the judgment. You have an appointment. Every single one of us is moving every day closer to that appointment. You're going to die. That's not the end of anything. That's not your final breath. It's not your final thought. It's not the final thing you see. Every one of us dies and we move immediately into an appointment with God to give an account for our sin. And can I just warn you right now, you're not ready to give that account. You're not ready to justify. You're not ready to explain. None of us is. The good news is, folks, God loves you. And he knows you're not ready for that appointment. So God moved to prepare you. As a matter of fact, he moved right away. He moved in Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you a couple of places there where God moved. One, you may not really recognize that God is moving to protect you, but but he is. Look at Genesis 3, verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I read that, that doesn't sound like I'm being protected there. (laughs) Doesn't sound like God's moving to do something good in my, what it sounds like is God is afraid I'm going to be like him. God's afraid I'm going to live forever. So he he kicked me out of the garden so that that wouldn't happen. And yet that's not what's happening right there. At this moment, we are now in a state of sin. If I reach out, and I've already shown I'm incredibly vulnerable to temptation. If I reach out and now eat of the tree of life, I would be eternally locked 
in a state of sin. I would be in an eternal state of being separated from God. So God removed us from the tree until he could fix what we broke. Until he could provide a way for you and I to escape, be able to escape death and that judgment that follows. The second thing God did was not just block us from getting eternally locked in sin, but then he promised in Genesis 3 an answer to that sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Now, this is where, where God is. He, he goes through and he brings consequences to, to Adam, to Eve, to Satan. We're reading the one that he brings to Satan. Verse 14, then Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done, done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Notice these last two lines. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, as you read verse 14, it sounds like, okay, it appears that God is judging a reptile... For its part in this unfolding drama. But as you get into verse 15, it says, hey, wait a minute. It seems like something bigger here is happening than just a reptile. God is judging the power and the force behind the reptile. He's judging Satan. But in judging him, he makes a promise. He says to Eve, hey, out of you is going to come a child. From your seed is going to be an answer. Now, Satan, you'll be able to strike that seed, the cross, but that seed will crush your head, okay? And, and, and so that crushing, okay, there's a promise right there. You see what Satan just did, did through Eve, and now God says, through Eve, I'm going to crush you. And that crushing will take place in two comings. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 28, describe these comings. So Christ, having been offered once, the first time, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for the Lord today? Yeah, and I didn't ask if you were waiting for him. I said, are you eagerly waiting for him. I know what I've eagerly waited for in life, and I usually think about it every single day. I usually call and ask, you know, is now, is that what we're doing with the second coming? So we see there that there's two comings, but you know, we missed that there was two comings. We, humanity, we, primarily the Jews, they didn't quite grasp that there was a first coming and a second coming. And they missed what was going on. And I don't want us to miss what's going on before we get to the second coming because it's really kind of shock and awe when we get to next week. It is quite devastating what we are going to see happen in the second coming. And so before you see what happens there, you need to see what God did the first time and how the two go together perfectly. We need to see the scripture always described from the very beginning, a first and a second. And you see that there's a first and a second when you see how very different the character of the two comings are. I could go to all kinds of passages to describe what the first coming looks like, but today I want to use Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you want to go ahead and turn there now, go to the Psalms. Everybody can find that usually pretty easily. Go to the Psalms right in the middle, and then just keep going to the right. You'll go through some smaller books. Pretty soon you'll be at a big book, Isaiah. 
Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 40 begins a discussion of what is referred to as the suffering servant. Okay, so that, that's an operative word right there, suffering. When we look at the second coming, there's no suffering, not, not by the servant, not by the Messiah, not by Jesus. We will see power and we will see glory. We will not see suffering. But in the first coming, suffering is a description of the Messiah. And, and I've picked Isaiah 53. I could go to a lot of passages, but there's... I, I just love this passage for so clearly describing what the Messiah looks like, what his character will be, what will happen to him, what he will do, why all of that is happening. And and what I want to get in Isaiah 53 is a real clear character of the Messiah in the first coming because it is radically different from what it looks like when he comes the second time. And you won't understand, you may not like God when he comes the second time if you'd missed out on and you didn't see what he did the first time. So let's look at that. So I I say this this discussion began in chapter 40. So when we start reading in chapter 3, there's been a description already going on for a while. 53, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. God entered the world, but physically speaking, there was nothing about him that we would go, oh, look, there's, look how beautiful he is. Look how strong he is. Look how glorious he is. There was nothing physically about him that would draw our attention to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The suffering and the misery was so much on him, we don't want to look at. You know, there's things you, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to be reminded that that kind of thing is going on. I don't want to be reminded that that's in the world. There there, there are images of pain and suffering and hurt. I just want to look away from. That's what Jesus looked like in the first coming. That is not what he looks like in the second coming. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's why he looked the way he looked. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I mean, he looked so bad, we thought he must have the judgment of God on him. Not knowing that he did have the judgment of God on him. Because my sin was on him. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Folks, as I continue reading this, and it just perfectly describes Jesus, his actions, and the cross. I just want to remind you, Isaiah wrote this almost 800 years before Jesus walked on the earth. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Your only chance for peace is Jesus Christ. Peace in this world, peace in eternity. Peace, that idea that everything's okay. To be at an appointment with God and know everything's going to be okay. That peace comes from Jesus Christ. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. So as you're telling yourself that you're not the problem in the world today. That it's them. I just want you to be clear, that's not what God is saying. 
Humanity is the problem in the world today. It has always been the problem in the world today. And all we have pitched in. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord laid on him. The Lord laid on Jesus that turning. That iniquity. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. That was the thing most surprising to Pontius, wasn't it? Hey, man, you need to speak up and say something here. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Who would consider that the Messiah would be killed? He's not supposed to come here and be killed. He's supposed to come here and make me great. He's supposed to come here and make me happy. He's supposed to come here and make me the the top of the world. He's supposed to come here and make things great. Not supposed to come here and die. Well, God said 800 years before. No, he's going to go there and he's going to die. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. You remember he was crucified between two thieves. And with a rich man in his death. What's that mean? You remember when after Jesus died on the cross, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea came to the disciples and said, he can use my grave. Joseph was very wealthy. He had a wealthy man's grave and he gave it, freely gave it to Jesus Christ. And it worked out pretty good because Jesus only needed it for a couple days. (laughs) Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord. It wasn't your will. And it wasn't Satan's will. It was the will of the Lord to crush his son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You remember the night before Jesus was crucified, he was in the garden and cried out to God in prayer. And he said, you know, all things being equal, I'd like not to go to the cross. <laughs> I'd prefer not to take. I mean, if we're just talking about what we want, I, I, I would like not to do that. But I want your will even more. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What was the will of the Lord? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The the Messiah, his son that's being crushed, the one who's in his hands holds the will of God. He will see God's will. He will be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The will of God is that when you go to that appointment, you can be counted as righteous. You can be counted as in right standing with God. That's the will of the Lord that prospered in the hand of Jesus. And that's what it looked like the first time. 
The Jews missed it. The world missed it. God entered the world. My creator, the one who made me, entered the world. And I didn't even know. I didn't even see it. What the Jews were looking for was a a conquering king. They were looking for a David of old. Man, I want a king. I want What was David? That striking, handsome, strong man. The guy that looks like a leader. The guy that looks like the answer. They wanted a conqueror. They, they wanted somebody to take out the Roman Empire so there was an Israeli Empire. And see, that was the problem, even when we want God. I, I want God to take out the enemy so my kingdom is up front. I want my kingdom over the world. God had to come a first time, folks, because your kingdom isn't in, is what he's interested in setting up. Your kingdom is not the will that prospered in the hand of Jesus. Jesus came and the will of God prospered in his hand. The will that would give you and I the opportunity. Think how big God's will is. What was my will? Just beat the Romans. Just beat the Romans and let my nation, let my flag be the one that waves. I want my government to win. I'm right and the world's wrong. So we completely missed God. We completely missed God because we wanted something so small. God said, I want to make you righteous for eternity. I want to give you a kingdom that lasts for eternity. I want you to know the king of all kings that is good and loving and kind. Now just look back down at Isaiah 53. And just look at some of the words. Despised, rejected, sorrows, grief, oppressed, afflicted, crushed. Those are the words that describe the first coming. Those are the words that are character of the work of Christ in the first coming. Now. Let's listen to the words that describe the second coming. Listen to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. I've got it on the, the, the screen here. Again, this is, this is hundreds of years before the first coming, but God gave Daniel a vision of the second coming. You will not see the word suffer. You will not see the word oppressed or grief or rejected or stricken. You will see this. As I looked, I saw in the night visions and beholds with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. They will all serve Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now let's let somebody who I really love, and I think you do too, let's let Jesus describe when he comes back a second time. Remember, he's saying this in a form that most did not recognize, in a form that most were not drawn to. Listen to how he describes his second coming in Matthew 24, verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Most of the universe missed when Jesus came the first time. Nobody's going to miss when he comes the second time. 
Nobody, not believer, not unbeliever, nobody misses when he comes the second time. Verse 30, then he will appear in the heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. Then all of the tribes in the earth will mourn. If you do not grasp why he came in the first time, you will mourn when he comes the second time. You will hurt when he comes the second time. You've got to see these descriptions before we get to next week. Before we actually read 19, 11 to 21, you need to see the warning that God gave. You need to see what he provided so that you did not have to experience what happens when he comes the second time. For the believer, words like dominion and glory and power, man, those are beautiful and awesome. Make say hallelujah, amen? But for the rest of the world, they will not be saying hallelujah. Verse 30, then he will appear in the heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. Folks, Jesus is coming back. And if you can hold on till next week, that'll be the last time I teach you. We're going to actually read Revelation 19 next week. Last week, last week a wedding. Today we come and we get a full context and understand why is God doing what he's doing? Because when he comes back next time, the blood will flow across this planet to the height of a horse's bridle. It will be devastating. Justice will be done. Next week, we look to our one great hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and thank you and praise you for detail. These are not fancy fantasies. These are not neat little stories. You have gone into great detail all throughout history to describe your plan, your plan to fix our choices, your plan to deal with our sin and to do it in a way where we could still be okay on the other end, to bring judgment against sin, but provide a way for those who would choose the opportunity to be counted as righteous. Lord, thank you that there was a first coming before there's the second coming. And thank you that because of the first coming, I can worship you and I can adore you and I can love you and I can greatly look forward to your second time to come to this earth. Oh, what a day. Oh, what a day. God, I pray every day this week we would anticipate, we would eagerly long to be back here next Sunday to be able to read and hear and to understand those words of the second coming. And God, may we eagerly want that more than anything else in this life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.